At 4.17 p.m. on October the 28th last year, Matthew Perry was pronounced dead. He had been found unresponsive in his bathtub by his assistant. The autopsy report listed the acute effects of ketamine as the cause of death. He was 54 years old. And the reason we're speaking about him is the song we just heard. Uh, You have the lyrics to that song on this little leaflet on your seats. It's not a particularly good song, is it? Uh, It's a bit of an earworm. Once it's in there, it's in there for the rest of the week. But it became an anthem of the age in the 1990s because it was attached to a show called Friends, which I presume doesn't need much introduction. Quick survey, who's heard the song? All right, who has watched at least one episode of Friends? Okay, now true confessions. Who's watched all ten seasons? <laughs> all ten seasons more than once. Okay. For ten seasons and 236 episodes, that song was the signal for millions of people around the world to run through to the living room and book their seat on the couch. And the, the song fits the show so beautifully because they both have this very simple message. We all need a true friend. A friend who's going to be there for us, no matter what. It's a message that resonates with all of us. It touches a nerve deep within us because we all feel that need. That is a profoundly human need. No single person illustrates that need better than Matthew Perry, one of the stars of the show, in 2022, he published his memoir called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. What really struck me about this book is its honesty. This is an honest account of a life of deep personal struggle. It seems that his death was at least, at least indirectly caused by that struggle, though God alone knows exactly how he died and why he died. At a superficial level, the struggle itself is a puzzle. I mean, what was there to struggle about? Let's think this through. He was one of the leading lights in one of the most popular TV shows of all time. Friends got more than 60 Emmy nominations. 52 million Americans watched the final episode. That's the same as the whole population of South Africa at the time. In the year 2000, Perry himself was the star of the number one TV show in the U.S. and the number one movie in the U.S. at the same time. There's only one other actor who's ever achieved that feat. And of course, the success paid well. Perry's estimated net worth at the time of his death, and bear in mind he wasn't frugal, he didn't count the pennies, was 120 million U.S. dollars. Of course, he lived the life to match. To give you an idea, at one stage he bought a luxury condo from Elton John and sold another one to Rihanna, as you do, you know. That was his social set. Those were the circles he played in. His love life was equally star-studded. He dated Yasmin Bleeth from Baywatch, Lizzie Kaplan from Mean Girls, and Julia Roberts, whose CV doesn't need to be attached. He was also an influencer before influencers were even a thing. It's no exaggeration to say that he changed the way that whole culture does sarcasm. Can you be any dumber? 
The point is that Matthew Perry was a success by every standard measure of success available. Sex, fame, money, power. So where's the struggle? If you are puzzled, so was he. He thought fame would be enough. This is how he put it in the book. I was pretty sure fame would change everything. And I yearned for it more than any other person on the face of the planet. I needed it. He needed fame. He even prayed for fame. He's brave enough to write that prayer down for us in his book. Here's his prayer. God, you can do whatever you want to me. Just make me famous. Three weeks later, he was cast for friends. But fame was not what it promised to be. Years later, he was talking to his estranged friend who actually turned down the role of Chandler in Friends. Can you imagine being the actor who turned down the role of Chandler? That's like the record company who rejected the Beatles. Anyway, here's the conversation between the two of them. When he got to my apartment, the tension was high. Craig spoke first. I want you to know that I'm very sorry for not speaking to you for the past two years. I simply couldn't handle the fact that you got rich and famous doing a role that I turned down. We were both good enough to get that role. And so I just couldn't handle it. I heard him out. There was a silence. I hated what I was actually about to say, but I had to say it. I said, you know what, Craig? It doesn't do what we all thought it would. It doesn't fix anything. His final word on fame is this. You have to get famous to, the, to know that it's not the answer. You have to get famous to know that it's not the answer. And nobody who is not famous will ever truly believe that. He's so right, isn't he? We don't believe him. We don't believe him. In fact, I bet there are people in this room who have prayed that prayer. God, you can do whatever you want to me. Just please make me famous. When he got there, he realized fame doesn't fix anything. He discovered the same thing when it came to sex. At the height of his fame, he made it his explicit goal to sleep with every woman in Los Angeles County. Now, I've Googled, and there are five million women in Los Angeles County. That was his ambition. He describes his pitch like this. Because of this huge star thing, I had no problem getting dates. And this is how I opened each and every one of them. Hi, sorry I'm late. You look great, by the way. I've been so excited to finally meet you. But because I don't want to get off on the wrong foot here, I want to be as transparent as possible. I am an open book. Ask me anything, I'll tell you the truth. More warmth would be shared. On a good day, she would tend to be nodding along, loving my transparency, my emotional pitch, my very air of suave involvement. Then I would bring the hammer down. I'm not sure what you're looking for. But if it's any kind of emotional attachment, I am not your man. I am not going to call you every day. I am not going to be your boyfriend. But if it's fun you're looking for, then I am your man. 
He goes on to write that great 20th century philosopher Cindy Lauper was right when she said girls do in fact just want to have fun. He evaluates his success with women. This is what he writes. I barely need to point out that the best you could say about all this was that at any point you could exchange my head for a donkey's ass and no one would tell the difference. What I was proposing was just a giant waste of time. Sex is great and everything, but I think I would be a much more fulfilled person now if I had spent those years looking for something more. In a life riddled with mistakes, this may have been my biggest one. And mistakes are hard to undo. During that time, I met at least five women that I could have married and had children with. Had I done so just once, I would not now be sitting in a huge house overlooking the ocean with no one to share it with, except a sober companion, a nurse, and a gardener twice a week. How desperately sad. Fame was not the answer. Women were not the answer. Was money the answer? He was determined to try and find out. He bought houses and cars like you and I buy bread and milk. When things got bad, he would just move house. He would just exchange one mansion with an ocean view for another mansion with an ocean view. He would just change the geography. He would just move. The problem, in his words, is that wherever you go, there you are. Fame, sex, money, nothing seemed to work. He had everything, but he still lacked something. He still lacked the most important thing. Fame, sex, money simply couldn't fill the hole inside, and so from very early on, he tried to fill that hole with something else. Again, here's how he tells it. I'm constantly filled with a lurking loneliness, a yearning, clinging to the notion that something outside of me will fix me. But I had everything that the outside had to offer. Julia Roberts is my girlfriend. It doesn't matter. You have to drink. I just bought my dream house. It looks out across the whole city. Can't enjoy that without a drug dealer. I'm making a million dollars a week. I win, right? Would you like a drink with that? Why, yes, I would. Thank you very much. I had it all. But it was all a trick. Nothing was going to fix this. Please don't misunderstand me. All those things were wonderful. They just were not the answer. Because Perry couldn't fix himself with things outside like sex, money, or fame, because he couldn't answer the key questions of life, because there was a hole that wouldn't be filled from very early on, very early on, he tried to fill that hole with alcohol and drugs. He started drinking when he was 14. By his early 20s, he was drinking every single night. Then in his mid-20s, he was involved in a jet ski accident, and the doctor prescribed Vicodin. 18 months later, he was taking 55 Vicodin a day. He was only 26 years old when he went to rehab for the first time. It was the first of more than a dozen visits to rehab over the course of his struggle. He describes one of his binge episodes like this. So I'm in Dallas. I'm on methadone, a quart of vodka a day, cocaine and Xanax. 
Every day I would show up to set, pass out in my chair, wake up to do a scene, stumble to set, just, just basically scream into the camera for two minutes. Then it was back to my chair for further nap time. At this point in my life, I was one of the most famous people in the world. In fact, I was being burned by the white-hot flame of fame. So no one dared to say anything about this horrific behavior. By 2018, he transitioned to opioids along with the rest of America. He says the problem with opioids is that they cause constipation. He got so badly constipated that his colon exploded inside of him and very nearly killed him. When he reflects on where drugs and alcohol have taken him, he can only arrive at one conclusion. There is a hell. There is a hell. Don't let anyone tell you different. I've been there. It exists. End of discussion. So why did he drink? What drove him so relentlessly into drugs and alcohol? What was this hole that he was trying so desperately to fill? Of course, only he can answer the question. And he has his best attempt. I can't decide if I actually like people or not. People have needs. They lie, cheat, steal, or worse. They want to talk about themselves. Alcohol was my best friend because it never wanted to talk about itself. It was always just there, the mute dog at my heel, gazing up at me, always ready to go on a walk. It took away so much of the pain, including the fact that when I was alone, I was lonely. And when I was with people, I was lonely too. It made movies better, songs better, it made me better. It made me comfortable with where I was instead of wishing I was somewhere, anywhere else. It took away being an outsider in my own family. It allowed me to control my feelings and in so doing control my world. Like a friend, it was there for me. Like a friend, it was there for me. How ironic. All the superstar of friends ever wanted was a friend. Someone who would be there for him. Someone who, in the words of the theme song, would know me, someone who could see me, someone who knows what it's like to be me. He wanted what we all want. He just wanted to be truly loved. Towards the end of his book, Perry puts it like this. I want a connection. I want a connection to something bigger than me because I'm convinced It's the only thing that will truly save my life. The superstar of friends wanted a true friend. He couldn't find one in sex or money or fame. He couldn't find one in the crowds of people that were always around him, worshipping him. He found a friend in alcohol. But alcohol was a false friend. It betrayed him and sold him into hell. And then he was found dead in the bath by a paid assistant, age 54. It's a really sad story. But because he's so honest, there's so much there we can empathize with. There's so much there that is our story, if we're honest. There's so much there we can learn. 
especially when we put this story alongside a similar story from the Bible. And it's there on your seat if you'll just grab this leaflet. Let me read it for us. It's got Mark 10 in bold at the top of the page. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. This man who approaches Jesus is often called the rich young ruler. Now, there, of course, there are obvious differences between him and Matthew Perry. But in some of the most important ways, they are the same. Here is another young man who seemed to have everything. But he lacked the most important thing. Like Perry, he's rich. Like Perry, he has great standing in his community. He's also a seeker, just like Perry. He's searching. He's searching for meaning, for purpose. He's looking for that something to fill the hole in his soul. For something that will satisfy the deepest yearnings of his heart. Just like Perry, he knows, somehow he knows, vaguely he knows, it has something to do with God, with gaining heaven and avoiding hell. And that's why he asks the question the way he does. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Just like Perry, he's gone off looking for eternal life in all the wrong places. Perry went to sex, fame, alcohol, money. The rich young ruler went Looking, it's the same quest, he just went looking in the opposite direction. He went looking for meaning in morality, in clean living, in an upstanding life. He's kept all the commandments since he was a boy, but he still couldn't find what he was looking for. And so he runs to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, I've been doing all my life. And I still don't have the answer. I've done everything. What am I missing? What else is there? What could there possibly be? What must I do? Here we have two men. Matthew Perry and the rich young ruler. Both men are on a quest for eternal life. 
They've just gone off looking in opposite directions. Jesus makes it very clear that this young man is looking in the wrong place. No one is good except God alone. That statement exposes the futility of our moral efforts, our doing. You are not going to get there by your own moral effort. You are not going to find what you are looking for in your own self-righteousness. But the young man insists he will. When Jesus reminds him of the demands of the law, he answers, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And then in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is the turning point. This is the pivotal moment for the rich young ruler, for Matthew Perry, for me, and for you. This is what we've been looking for. Jesus looked at him, but he didn't just look at him. He looked into him, into the depths of his soul, into the crude oil in the pits of his soul. And he loved him. Despite what he saw there, not because of what he saw there, despite what he saw there, he loved him. He saw all the moral pride, all the self-sufficiency, that deep-seated sense of superiority, the worship of wealth, the ugliness of it all. And he loved him. But we must be crystal clear. This love isn't affirmation. This isn't pretending there's nothing wrong down there. This isn't just looking the other way so that we can have a good time together. This is not the cheap, shallow version of, I'll be there for you. To ignore all your flaws and affirm all your selfish decisions because you're there for me too. It's a back-scratching exercise. Jesus loves him enough to show him what he lacks. To tell him the hard truth of his deficiency. To tell him that all his money and all his morality are never going to be enough. To tell him that the things... The thing that he needs to get to God is standing right in front of him. You lack one thing. You lack me. Now follow me. Leave all your moral wealth and your material wealth behind. They're not going to get you there. They're just going to weigh you down. They are not the answer. They are not what you are looking for. In the words of Matthew Perry, they are not going to fix anything. They are not enough. The rich young ruler finds this truth too much to bear. He counts the cost and the cost is too high. His whole life he has been enough and he's had enough. And here he is confronted with the fact that he will never have enough or be enough. The only way to purpose, to meaning, to satisfaction to heaven, to eternal life, to God, is through Jesus. He's the only way. Jesus loved him enough to tell him that truth. But it was too much for him to bear. It was also too much for his own followers to bear. Look at verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? They are perplexed by this whole thing. If this man, 
who kept the commandments, this upstanding, well-respected, moral leader in our community, if he doesn't get in, who gets in? If Matthew Perry, with every advantage in life and virtually no limits, if he can't find happiness, who can? Jesus' answer is both chilling and comforting at the same time. First, the scary part. He says, this is impossible with man. In other words, you are never going to find what you're looking for. That happiness you're chasing, it will always be two steps in front of you. You cannot satisfy the deepest desires of your soul. You can't do it. You can try whatever you like. It is not going to work. Ask Matthew Perry. That's chilling. That's more than chilling. That is hopeless. Until Jesus says what he says next. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. You can't, but God can. Now those words are a great comfort. But they do leave us with a question. How? How is this going to be possible with God? What exactly is he going to do to fulfill the yearnings that are deep within my soul? If we can't find what we're looking for, If no amount of fame or sex or money or moral performance is enough, what is it going to take? How does God satisfy the deepest desires of our souls? It's not what we might think. He doesn't do it with an act of power. Of course he could. He's God, but he doesn't. He does it with an act of love. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The next time Jesus says these very same words, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his execution, and he's praying. Listen to his prayer. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The cup that Jesus is trying so desperately to avoid is the cup of God's judgment on human rebellion. It's the hell that Matthew Perry just put to his lips and tasted. It's the mess we make by worshipping fame, sex, morality, anything and everything but God himself. Jesus takes that hell and he drinks it down to its dregs. And then he gives us the cup of the heavenly banquet. He takes that hell on himself and he gives us the heaven that belongs to him. He trades places with us and he does it out of love. And because he's trading heaven for hell... There is no greater act of love. Because he's doing this, not for deserving people, 
But for selfish, self-righteous people like you and me, there is no greater act of love. Because he's actually looked down into us and see, seen the crude oil in the pits of our souls. He's looked right down to the very bottom and loved us anyway to hell and back. There is no greater act of love. Jesus is the friend we're all looking for. He's the love we are thirsting for. As Matthew Perry put it, he is the connection to something bigger than ourselves that will truly save us. I don't know if Matthew Perry ever found Jesus. I hope and pray that he did. There were some, there were some promising signs in the book, but God alone knows. It seems the rich young ruler missed his chance. As Billy Graham said of him, the young man came with the right question to the right man and got the right answer, but he made the wrong decision. He made the wrong decision. You don't have to. Matthew Perry and the rich young ruler, they've made their choices. They've run their races. Yours is still in front of you. You are at a crossroads in life this morning. Jesus is standing in front of you this morning and he's looking at you. More than that, he's looking into you. Down into your soul. He sees everything. But he loves you anyway. He loves you enough to tell you it's impossible for you to make it on your own. He also loves you enough to make it possible on your behalf and in your place. Jesus loved you all the way to the cross. He's the friend we've all been looking for. Now he's looking at you. He's looking into you. He's loving you, and he's calling you to follow him into eternal life this morning. You have a decision to make. You have a choice to make. What's it going to be? If you want to respond to his call of love this morning, then you do that just by answering back to him in prayer. That's what prayer is. It's just talking to God. If you want to respond to Jesus' invitation to come to him this morning and be loved and experience the kind of love you have never experienced, then all you have to do is pray. And I'm going to pray a prayer that's for you. If you want to respond to Jesus this morning, this prayer is for you. You just pray it quietly in your own heart. Follow along with me. Let's pray together. Father God, I realize that all my life I've been searching for you. I've been looking in all the wrong places. I've been trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong things. Please forgive me. Thank you for loving me. 
and sending Jesus to be the friend I've always needed. The friend who saves me from myself. Help me to choose him today. Help me to follow him from this day forward into eternal life. Amen.